We trust that you're having a beautiful Sabbath experience wherever you might be. It happens to be a beautiful sunny morning here in Berrien Springs. We're glad you've tuned in to the Village Church for this Sabbath service. Let's pray. Lord, our lives are yours, and we ask that we'd follow you wherever you lead. So please guide us in this message, Lord, for indeed you're wanting to teach and transform. And may we let you impress our hearts uh, the way you want to impress them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This morning I've entitled my message, Prophetic Lockdown. I'm in the midst of a series called Confidence in Crisis. There's a purpose behind this sermon series, and one of the purposes is to grow your faith in the ability of God to deliver. Uh, The other purpose is to show you that there will be no means of deliverance by stratagem. It's important for you to understand that as we come up to the time of the end, the real showdown is between Lucifer and Satan. We happen to be ambassadors for Christ who will declare that we are loyal to him no matter what. Satan will seek to extinguish our presence from the face of the globe and declare success in the final overthrow of this world. So as we're making our way through the series, one of the things that I hope will be the result is that your confidence by by profession and by practice will grow as you follow the Lamb wherever He goes. I don't want to give anybody a false sense of assurance, but I don't want anybody to have assurance who's put their their destiny in the hands of Christ. So I want to talk with you for a few moments about what makes us different. Uh, Human beings are amazingly blind and stubborn. Uh, There's two things, at least these two things, that distinguish us from most of the rest of the created world. Not that animals can't have their own form of stubbornness, but there is an element about man that's reluctant to see, and there's an element about man that's reluctant to do, and it can create an awful lot of trouble. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the dynamic of fear in our society this morning. We find at this moment two groups of people. Uh, There is a legitimacy in concern, the social distancing, the attempt to tamp down the virus, all of these things are appropriate, but the way we relate to these lockdown orders of which 95% of America is under some type of shelter in place order, even though not all states have declared them the way the population's distributed, 95% of Americans are under some kind of of, uh, cease and desist from regular activity uh, directive from their government. And what we see in our society is that the farther we get away from situations that require us to solve problems, the more of a functionary of fear we are in the midst of crisis and trauma. Now, I want to think for a moment about my life experience. And I I want to contrast it perhaps against your life experience, if it's different than mine. Of course, in some degree it will. When I was a kid, uh, my mother made it a point to make me a problem solver. So the first time my bike with its pneumatic tires had a flat tire, she showed me how to fix it. The second time, yes, my mother, the second time she told me to fix it. So as I wrestled with the wrenches and got the chain off the back sprocket and took the uh, flat screwdriver and popped the edge of the outside of the tire away from the rim and discovered the inner tube and 
filled it with some air and put it inside a big bucket to see where it was leaking, marked the leak, cleaned the spot, patched it, stuck it back in, hopefully not pinching the inner tube as I put it back in, getting everything back together. Uh, the result was is that the next time I had an issue with my bicycle, it was no longer a, a big problem to me. It was just an inconvenience, and it was time for me to fix it. For those who grew up on farms, who've worked with their hands, who are solving problems all the time, life does not have the same ability to create stress in every front as it does in some others. For those of you that are Seventh-day Adventists and listening to me, this is another reason why the spirit of prophecy directs us to teach our children how to work with their hands. It creates problem solving. It also creates a mindset of conquering issues, not being conquered by them. Knowing how to solve a problem changes the way you look at it. One person can be tremendously stressed by a situation that another person's not stressed by because they know how to fix it. This is important for us to think about in our religious experience. So when I think back to my journey to Jesus, the first 12 years of my life, 13 years of my life, I lived as a regular uh, citizen of the United States, feasting on all the mental fodder, living the way that most people in America lived in the 1970s, 1960s. And then my world changed. My mother enrolled me in a Christian school. From that moment forward, I was confronted with a whole new spectrum of experiences, people, teachings. In the midst of all that, I gave my life to Christ, but along the way, I learned what Christ wanted. So for instance, every Saturday morning as a boy, I would get up and plop myself down in front of the television, and I would watch all of the cartoons I could watch. Every Friday night as a child, with my supper in hand, I would sit down in front of the television and, and watch as much of the Hollywood fare that was being offered as I could. Every Saturday in the wintertime, I would go down the hill from Market Heights to North Pekin to Georgetown Public School, and I would play basketball. Every Saturday in the summer, I would pick up an aluminum bat or a leather glove, and I was a part of the baseball league. Yes, very much indeed, the appetites of my heart and mind were built around the typical things that Americans' appetites and hearts were built around. When I became a Christian, or as I was becoming a Christian, I learned about the glorious provision of Jesus. And then I learned what he wanted from me. He wanted me to surrender these things to the primacy of his plan for my life. So on Saturday morning, I was no longer going to sit in front of the television and watch Bugs Bunny. Uh, on Friday night, I was no longer going to sit in front of the television and watch the Dukes of Hazard. It meant that I was going to change what I ate. It meant that I was going to change what I was going to listen to. It meant that I was going to change what I spent my money on. It meant a whole spectrum of whatever total surrender can encompass, and it was something I had to decide. So I remember that first Friday night when the rest of my family was watching television, and I was in that room in the basement next to the family room. And it wasn't a terribly finished room. It had one of those vinyl accordion doors on it, which certainly doesn't keep out sound. And I can still remember to today where I was standing as I was making my decision. Here's the door, and here's a wall, and here I am standing right here. And the audio from the television is easily making its way into my room. 
And I'm standing here in my room deciding if I'm going to push that door back and go out and sit down and watch TV with everybody else. I've learned that Christ is, has directed, commanded that my time during these 24 hours be set aside for an engagement with him where I let go of the secular, and in this case, even the profane, and I engage that which is holy. I am thankful to say that I had been taught how to pray. And as I stood by that door, praying for God to give me the strength to say no, eventually I moved away from the door. I don't know if I went outside afterwards or not, but I know this, I did not walk in and carry on with my previous, previous habits where Christ had not been a part of my life. And as I progressed on from there, I was confronted with other things along the way. Some of you have heard my story. You know that I was asked at least two times not to come back to Seventh-day Adventist schools because of money. God kept me in those schools. You could say at some level that I got to have my back against the wall in which the provision of Christ became my real only lifeline. What I discovered was that Christ was more than a lifeline. The joy of walking with him was a path of happiness. Now, I, I want to do this at the very beginning of this message entitled Prophetic Lockdown because depending on the experience you've brought to this message, you're going to interpret it one of two ways. Everybody has an experience. Your life view is shaped by your experience. If you've never been pushed to do something that was stressful or risky, if you've never been pushed to grow, you're an exceptionally disadvantaged person. If you're a parent listening to me right now, there's a, there is a line that divides uh, abuse from properly parent-induced stress in the regards to growth. But if you've always been in a position where everybody has focused their attention, think parents, around meeting all of your needs, and you've not been trained to meet other people's needs, and you've not been stretched and grown, then you're going to be a person who faces the moment we're in right now with COVID-19 and this lockdown and all the worries and fears that are out there. You're going to approach this whole situation completely differently. Now I know that the inputs into my children's life are somewhat different than mine. They grew up inside this church. I didn't. So hopefully their life is a little bit different in the appetites they have to battle and the potential addictions that the devil would like to thrust into the mind, uh, a mental hook, as it were, in our nose to pull us along. If you were raised in this church, by God's grace, if it was a principled, beautiful church at home, there were certain things you were saved from. But some of the things you might not have experienced are what we need in this moment. For instance, all the things I laid on the altar to follow Jesus, I discovered laying them on the altar was much less difficult than living my life without the sweet peace of Jesus in my heart. As a matter of fact, every time I laid something on the altar, the joy that flooded my soul more than made up for what it was I left behind. My mother was not of the persuasion, even though she was not living a Christian lifestyle, she was not of the persuasion to allow me to go through life thinking I was the center of the family's universe. So along the way, my experience with God was shaping me to be stretched when I sensed God was calling me to go to a certain school, when I sensed God was calling me to take a certain job. It put me on a journey of learning. When, I was, when I'm confronted with elements that remind me or tie me back to the world, it's easy for me to say, no, those things aren't going to have a part of what I have now because the sweetness, the joy, and the freedom of walking with Jesus. Now, 
What if you're in a Seventh-day Adventist or Christian home and you've never been asked to lay anything on the altar? What if all along the way the parents have been focused on meeting your needs, the school is focused on meeting your needs, the church is focused on meeting your needs, the pathfinders, the adventurers? What if these organizations are not actually focused to teach you to meet other people's needs? What if you've never been stretched to take a step of faith? What if you've never been in that discomfort zone that actually precedes a greater comfort, a greater confidence? This morning, I want to talk with you about the fact that if you want to go from being perpetually in a battle with fear to a battle where peace reigns because you have confidence in God, you're going to have to move for Jesus. When I left the world behind to embrace Jesus, I laid everything on the altar, and I have to keep laying it on the altar today. But if you grew up inside this church, especially if your church was blessed with professionals and and generous people, whether they were working with their hands in a blue-collar way or in some other way as a white-collar worker, if your church was blessed to where you were never needing to be on this stretch for anything, you might have lost a blessing that comes with being drawn out for God. In other words, there's a lot of Seventh-day Adventist churches right now and a lot of Seventh-day Adventist homes where they've primarily enjoyed what God has given them. They've never had to lay much on the altar. They've never had to take a real posture of faith, of risk in the name of Jesus. And consequentially, they come up to where we are right now as we're going through this major birth pang. They have an awful lot more fear to face because the roots of their life, the citizenry of their spiritual person is more tied to this world than to the world to come. There's something about a church that when it recognizes its obligation to carry the gospel message to the world actually calls out of lives of convenience into lives of spiritual commitment, and that journey itself is the getting ready for the bigger things. I think about what Jeremiah wrote in chapter 12, verse 15, when he says, If you've run with the footmen and they've wearied you, how can you contend with the horses? And if in the land of peace where thou trottest they wearied thee, how then wilt thou do in the swelling of the Jordan? You see, there's something incumbent upon the Christian church and upon every parent. And that is, they are actually to create experiences and encounters for the people they they steward, for the lives they shape, that will actually grow their confidence to where the, the forebodings from the east or the forebodings from the west don't unnerve them. Last night, several of you tried to tune into a revelation of hope awakening with It Is Written. What you found when you tried to tune in was that the site would not receive you. So depending on which venue you were using, you could not be a part of this amazing Bible prophecy series produced by It Is Written and presented by Pastor John Bradshaw. There's a reason. There's a reason. The reason is, is that some entity out there, there was an internet attack on this site where they were receiving 300,000 hits per second at their website. And of course, what website can endure that kind of traffic? Maybe a few. I want to read you the text. It says, apparently we had an attack, like a proxy attack. Our text guys are saying they've never seen such a malicious, organized attack. It was intended to take our site offline, a different kind of traffic smacking our site over and over and over again. It was a deliberate attack to take us down. It was more than 300,000 hits per second. 
I have the shivers just thinking about it. I guess there's a reason we've been praying all day for this. What you might know as well is that just a day or two before, a tornado came through the very environs of where it is writ written is headquartered at. And on each side of the building, these howling winds were blowing. What I'm trying to say to you is, is there's nothing new under the sun. And what has been is what will be. And that we're really locked in a spiritual battle. And if we, if we fool ourselves, remember I said human beings are particularly blind and stubborn. If we fool ourselves into thinking everything as it is, is as it always will be. And if we learn nothing from history, we're in tremendous trouble. Take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Revelation chapter 13. What was is what will be. There's good news and bad news in that. It just depends on the kind of confidence that you have. Revelation chapter 13 is the story of two beasts. One beast comes up out of the sea. We know the Bible says the sea represents people, multitudes, nations, and tongues. This beast is oppressive. It does not allow for religious liberty. It represents the medieval church. That period of time in which you couldn't read the Bible yourself, it was chained to the church. Only the official priests could give you an interpretation that was acceptable and understandable. The time period is spelled out. Worship is identified with it. We come down to verse 8, Revelation 13. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written down from the foundation of the world in the book of life and the Lamb who's been slain. And then it says... To all of us human beings, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. This old beast has been around for a long time. It showed itself in different societies, whether it was kings that made themselves God, like Nebuchadnezzar, or whether it was gods that were so large and woven so implicitly into the society in which empires have existed that those who would not worship it were considered unloyal to the throne. That beast has been around forever. What's unique is the experience that America has and that it has, in a benefit to all of the world, given opportunity for those to learn that a nation ought to have laws that protects its citizens from abuse of power. But in Revelation chapter 13, there's a second beast that comes on the scene, one that John doesn't know how to really name. It has no real prophetic roots like the first beast, but it does have symbols on it that mean something. Verse 11, I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. The first beast is represented by the medieval church that oversaw that period of the dark ages that deviated from the word of God and held up the maxims and the pontifications of men over the word of God. The second beast comes on the scene at the end of the reign of the first beast. It's not hard to identify these two beasts when you look at all of their distinct characteristics. But this second beast comes on the scene, and for a while it has a benignness that belies its tendency to absolute power and its projection towards issues of religion and worship. This second beast for a time will appear peaceful and allow for liberty, but eventually this second beast representing the United States will speak as the first beast and it will compel worship and make an image to the beast. And if you go down to verse 16, it talks about a mark. 
And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or in their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number on his name. Here is written, let him who has understanding calculate the number, which we're not going to do right now. The scripture describes not only a time in which there'll be a financial lockdown where even if you have money, you can't use it, but eventually there'll be a desire to take the lives of those who don't fall in line with the compulsions of the first and the second beast as they combine their efforts. We're headed to a time of real trouble. We are not in that time just yet. As we looked last week, we saw that pestilence, wars, and famines are birth pangs. Of course, this one's global. It's quite intense. Thousands have died, and for those we're praying. But one of the things we need to know is that Jesus is looking to bring us to a position of attentiveness to know who he is to us and how we're to relate to these times. When I think about the life of Peter, I think of a man who we typically think of is not terribly afraid. He's always got the answer. He's confident. He's upfront. He sometimes gets ahead of himself, even his own thinking. But when we think about Peter, we also find a man who showed that behind it all, behind the pride, behind the confidence that was built on human experience alone, there was a man who could be shaken. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 26, and I want to look at verse 31 to 35. Peter is about to reveal that he's as human as any of the rest of us, and he can be made very, very afraid. Jesus has always delivered him before. When he's gotten his foot in his mouth and gotten out in front of himself, like proclaiming that his master pays the temple tax, Jesus could work a miracle. Go down, take a hook, catch a fish. The first fish you catch will have a gold coin in its mouth. Most of us have never caught a fish with a gold coin in its mouth. But Christ was willing to deliver Peter from some of his verbal faux pas or, or mistakes. And yet this time Jesus will be limited in his ability to deliver Peter. Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, this is in the upper room, you'll all fall away of me, away from me because of this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. There are two things in this sentiment that the disciples didn't want to hear. One is they didn't want any remembrances of the idea which had been repeated so often that Jesus was going to die that he was going to be resurrected. This didn't fit their storyline of selfish ambition and promotion, power, prestige, pleasure, and resources. The second thing all of them didn't want to be told, many of them robust fishermen, was that they didn't really love Jesus, and when push came to shove, they'd think of themselves more than they'd think of him. Peter has the gumption to verbalize what many of them were probably thinking, verse 34, verse 33. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I'll never fall away. Now, Jesus could have just left this alone, but it would have been a great robbery to you and me. Jesus, and it would have been a great robbery to Peter, Jesus is going to show to all of the disciples, not only does he understand them collectively, but he understands them individually. And Peter is going to show how little he knows about himself. Now, I would hope in this sermon that everybody that's listening would pause and say, 
I'm not better than Peter. I'm not wiser than Peter. I'm not spiritually more advantaged than Peter. Maybe there's things about me that I don't really understand. Instead of the pastor saying that human beings are are resolutely blind and stubborn, maybe at this moment, on this Sabbath morning, in the privacy of your own home, maybe everybody should stop for a moment and say, Peter represents the human race. No, Peter represents me. There's things about me that I don't want to see. There's things about me that I can't see. There's things about me that I've never seen. But I think I'm an expert on me. Now, there might be other people in your life who've given you viewpoints, something to think about. If you have them in your life, how blessed you are. And this, for instance, it's Jesus. And Peter is going to assure Christ that he knows best about himself. Thank you. No, thank you. I will never fall away. No fear, Peter says. But Jesus said to him, not only will you fall away, but this very night before the, the cock crows, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I won't deny you. And all the disciples were nodding their head the same exact way. There are a lot of Seventh-day Adventists who have fallen into a nominal Christian experience They're assured, but there's a measure of false assurance because along the way, they've ignored messages they don't like. They've tuned out preachers they don't want to listen to. They've decided that they know best for themselves. And then they've projected onto the lives of their children the same wrong self-focus. The Seventh-day Adventist church is not robust and alive in Western cultures today. Oh, it still has a money stream, but those who look at demographics and where that money's coming from recognize that eventually that too may find itself drying up. We may already see some of that happening. It's not our money that makes us strong. It's our walk with Christ. It's our ability to be led by the shepherd, to be filled with his spirit. Yes, I hope everybody listening to me at this moment in this message could say, there might be some things Jesus is trying to teach me right now. And maybe I think I understand myself a bit better than I do. But to find myself in the fellowship with Christ, sitting at the feet of Jesus, to be in the communion with his followers, to hear messages like this one that are directed to no one individually, but to all people as specifically if the Holy Spirit would apply it. This is what God is calling his people to. We ought to be assembling more, not assembling less. We ought to come in preparation for the Spirit to speak to us in these corporate meetings as well as pursue Jesus in the private audience. Yes, Jesus knew that Peter loved him, but he knew that when push came to shove, Peter loved Peter more than he loved Jesus. Turn over to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 22. Luke's story conveys a detail that none of the rest of the Gospels, the synoptics record. Luke chapter 22 at verse 56. I'm not going to capture all of Peter's time in the courtyard. He's been confronted by a servant girl. We'll get those three, starting with verse 56. A servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, this man was with him too. Now, Peter made a huge mistake. He wandered into the courtyard, and he was trying to disguise the fact that he was a Christian. Yes, nobody had been called a Christian yet, but that's what he was trying to hide from. He didn't want anybody to know he was too closely associated with Jesus. 
For the last 30 years, the Seventh-day Adventist Church has struggled because it is desired through the years not to be called a cult, not to be too different. The only problem is long after we, we lost the negative tag of being a cult, our trajectory carried us all the way over in looking like and being like in too many ways, just like everybody else. Indeed, Peter made a huge mistake in wandering in the courtyard trying to disguise his identity. Friends, the unique things of Adventism may tag you. They may bring some kind of calumny or scorn or criticism upon you. The truth of the matter is, these little experiences, like I was talking about in the beginning of the message, these little prices to pay in regards to persecution or loss of friends or status, this marginalization in, in circles of friends or society is actually part of what strengthens us for when uh, the grips of evil are upon us to choke out or to extinguish our love for Jesus. This girl recognized Peter by sight. She must have been one interested in Jesus. She must have noticed his proximity. That proximity to Christ had been a privilege. To proclaim Christ in this moment appeared to be a bad choice. But she saw him, and she was certain. He denied it, verse 57. Woman, I don't know him. Verse 58, a little later, another girl saw him and said, You're one of them too. Peter said, Man, I'm not. And after about an hour passed, another man began to insist, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he's a Galilean too. It's not just visual, it's, it's audiological. Peter has all the marks of being a follower of Jesus, but this is not a good time to be identified with Jesus. And Peter responds in verse 60, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And I love the, the explanation of this moment, the description of this moment in the book Desire of Ages. I encourage you to read it this afternoon. But verse 61 is poignant with a moment of grace that overpowers Peter. It says, the Lord turned and he looked at Peter. Wow. What a moment, what an experience. There's probably a whole sermon waiting to be preached on the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. In that moment, Ellen White says, uh, there, there was no anger or animosity on the face of Jesus, but disappointment and sorrow. Peter, in that moment, had an aha encounter with the creator of the universe, and he remembered what Jesus said. And it says he went out and he wept bitterly. Right back out to the place where great drops of blood had fallen in Gethsemane. Peter was laying on the ground now himself in a moment of self-awareness. He had seen what he had refused to see. All of the ambition associated with his journey to the top with Jesus had crashed and burned. All the ideas about his spiritual strength were lying in the dust, the ashes, consumed as it were in the fires of fear. And there Peter is ready to become a different man. And a different man is exactly what he would become. Jesus has an encounter with Peter. He restores him. He calls him back into what Jesus knew did exist, which was love for him. But Peter now knows something else exists, which is the desire of the human heart for ascendancy. And each time, without chafing, he responds to Jesus, Lord, you know I love you. 
Jesus and his disciples gather. They spend 40 days together after the crucifixion. And then Jesus ascends into the heavens and the apostles move into a posture of prayer waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit to fall on them. That time of praying is an intense bonding moment for the church of God. I want to assure you, friends, the book of Acts is the story of the church going from one victory to another. But I'm also going to tell you that people spend more time in jail, they're more beat up, some of them lose their lives. It's a story of tremendous persecution. But when you read the story of Acts, it's like the song, From Victory Unto Victory. And this experience lifts us above the fear of self-interest and self-preservation. Those 10 days of prayer or a preparation for something that would set the trajectory for the church for hundreds of years. And during those 10 days of prayer, as they're seeking God individually and collectively, as they're confessing and they're remembering, as they're strengthening each other's faith, they come up to the end of that 10 days, to the culmination of Pentecost, and there's the sound of rushing wind, cloven tongues of fire, and these men are gifted to proclaim, and what a proclamation it is. Peter will stand before a crowd of thousands and declare that which he was embarrassed of before. He not only will be unabashedly speaking for Jesus, he will bring his audience before the tribunal, the bar of justice of heaven, and he will declare that they took the life of their Savior. And the Holy Spirit animating his person and enlivening his words will drive arrows of truth to the heart of many and thousands are converted in a day. And the trajectory of Peter's life is different going forward. Friends, I want to assure you that Peter's experience is to be our experience. God is wanting to take us who can only limitedly see what it is that's hindering us and holding us back. He's calling us to lay on the altar day by day whatever it is he speaks to us in regards to could be today, could be in a message like this, a deepening conviction about something, something principled, something lined out in precept. But Christ is calling us from an experience in which self is at the center of the journey, even though difficult to recognize and, and not something we want to admit or see. But he calls us to the cross where we see nothing impressive about ourselves, but we see this glorious love of Jesus. In the process leading up to the crucifixion, Jesus looks at Peter. Peter sees that he's gotten totally out of the way. He's not stood up. He's not stood by. And Jesus has only pity for Peter, and it breaks his heart. Friends, the covenant God's made with you is based upon the goodness of God, not your performance. The, the, the commitments Christ has made for you come from his heart of love, not what you can give back. As a matter of fact, what you can give back is a gift from God to give back. Peter comes out of this experience as a converted man. The words of Romans 2.4 certainly must come to mind that it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Something terrible might have happened to you. You could see where if circumstances would have gone just another way. What does it elicit from your heart to know that God loves you in spite of your unloveliness? to make a decision you never thought you'd make. Did, G, did Peter in all of his life ever imagine he'd abandon his best friend, deny that he even knew him, curse and swear to declare there is a difference between him and me and I'm gonna make it easy for you to see and listen to? 
Yes, Peter goes from one man into another man by drawing near to God. And yet this drawing near to God is exactly what the devil's trying to stand in front of us and keep from happening. And by the way, the journey to God was not just individual. There was an individual moment when Peter met the eyes of Jesus met the eyes of Peter. That's an individual encounter. When Peter is out in Gethsemane, laying there on the ground where Jesus prayed and sweat great drops of blood, prayed for Peter as well. He told him he would. I'll pray for you, Peter. That was an individual encounter. You can't substitute anything for that. When Peter is walking along with Jesus, that's an individual encounter when he's restoring him. But when the Holy Spirit's poured out, it's a bunch of individuals who have come into a symphony full of harmony, asking for the same thing from God. That's not an individual encounter. God doesn't pour the Holy Spirit out typically on individuals lest somebody get big-headed and think somehow they've got a corner on the market. God pours His Spirit out on the church. They share in the reception together. They share in the joy of the exercising of the empowerment and gifts together. That's why getting together matters so much. Yes, we are to be pressing together, as Paul will write in Hebrews 10.25, and all the more so as you see the day approaching, because God is wanting to pour out His Spirit on the family, the church family, to be precise. That's how it's done in the book of Acts. They all come out of this experience completely different. Take your Bibles and turn into the book of Acts. Peter, in Acts chapter 4, has just along with John, they have just given life to the powerless limbs of a paralytic who's begging at the gate beautiful. Peter, verse 8, is now in an encounter with those who, those who would like to shut him down, quiet him up. They've gathered him together, and they've spent a night in jail. Verse 8, but now they are being dialogued with and told what they can and can't do. And they're told, you need to quit talking about Jesus. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man's been made well, let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name the man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, referencing to Scripture. The builders, rejected by the builders, which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation and no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And you know, they sat there in a measure of, I'm sure, stunned silence for a second. All of these men who fled away are now just like their master. The Holy Spirit has empowered him. God has come down into their midst. He's living in their fellowship and he's living in their heart. Now as they observed that confidence, they understood, verse 13, that they were uneducated and untrained men and they were amazed and they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Who can beat the eloquence of the King James Version? They knew they had been with Jesus. You see, friends, Jesus has the power to take away our fears and make us bold. Jesus has the power to make us confident, not in the sense of ambition or a desire for a better world, a better life in this world, I should say, but Jesus has the power to take away our fear when it comes to the proclamation of the gospel. 
In this, for instance, they're warned, they're sent away, but they end up in jail again. They end up in jail, and this time they're delivered by night. They know they've been told to quit talking about Jesus. But they come out the next morning, and they're preaching in the temple. They're having the preliminary dynamics of court in the halls of the Sanhedrin. And they, they go to get the prisoners, and they're not there. Now, this is an important chapter in their experience. Now, listen to me very carefully. If you don't follow God on the faith journey he's marked out to you, you'll have a crisis when you're stuck in the spiritual battles of the end. You need to hear me really careful on this moment because we're about to go to Acts chapter 12 and we're going to see something absolutely amazing and unexplainable except for the fact Acts chapter 5 precedes it. Turn over if you would. And I want to look at Peter on what looks like will be the last night of his life. About that time, verse 1, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. The tide has changed. You have to remember, Stephen's been murdered. We say stoned, but it was murder. You have to remember that along the way, Saul was let loose to persecute the church. By this point in time, Saul is now Paul, and things are very different. Nonetheless, the mentality of the church is stamp out and destroy. The political powers have determined that they can take the religious sentiment of the day and harness it for political expediency. And so Herod has James beheaded, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So that might not be the best moment because the culture brought into town by all those who were there at the day of Pentecost years before might still rise up in opposition to the political maneuvering of Herod. So he's going to let the crowd come and go. Verse 4, when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. Don't miss this fact. There are four groups of four, 16 men, who will work in different shifts. One person tethered to Peter by a chain on this side. One person tethered to Peter by a chain on this side. One person or two people standing at the doors. Nobody's getting out of this prison. Why do I point this out? The Bible says we should be at least as shrewd as the sons of darkness are. And Herod had not lost the sense that Peter and his friends had already been delivered from a jail once before and nobody could explain how it happened. In other words, as a secular man, he at least had the sense to say, that's not going to happen again. But I want you to see more what it meant to Peter. So Peter was kept in prison, verse 5, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. There are at least two chapters in this story that are not written. One is the storyline of the family of faith, the communion of those that are petitioning heaven. We don't know what the experience was like for them, but we do know this. It's nighttime when the story happens. It's nighttime when Peter is delivered. It might even be early morning, but we know the church was up all night long because Peter was on death row, and if something didn't happen, they were going to lose their dear pastor. They're praying through the night. Their church, their structure, their people, their leadership 
it all matters enough to them to give up some sleep. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, verse 6, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. Now this hardly seems like one of the 12 who's hiding out in the upper room for fear of the Jews during the weekend of the crucifixion. This hardly looks like the man who can be put to flight by a servant girl in the courtyard of Caiaphas. This hardly looks like the man who was crying his eyes out in Gethsemane. This hardly looks like the same man. Indeed, it is the man whom God has grown to have a confidence and a peace supreme whom he can sleep in the night. But remember, friends, if in the morning in Acts chapter 5 they had not if, if they had not continued the proclamation of the gospel and been thrown in jail for it again and delivered by an angel, I don't know how Peter could find sleep quite so easily or quite so sweetly. In other words, as Peter is sleeping there that night, he has this one assurance. God has allowed him to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Friends, our lives are so much poorer when there is no suffering for any conviction, any belief that we hold so strongly that whether it's father or mother, children, relatives, family, or friends, when our lives are so free from any kind of identity with Christ that will make us anathema or receive the animosity of the world, we are spiritually poor. What's happened today is that the church has slowly built itself around a value system that doesn't trouble the world and consequently the world doesn't trouble the church. Instead of being the voice of collective conscience to a society so that it might not bend over towards evil, the church instead has found itself enjoying the same pleasures, celebrating in the same venues, watching the same things, going to the same stadiums, sitting in the same concerts, no, indeed, it is persecution for my identity with Christ, be it how I dress, how I talk, how I eat, what I watch, what I don't watch, what I listen to, and what I don't. It's these very things. And if you think your children should be immune from it, if you think it's somehow it's your job to save them from the emotional, spiritual duress of learning the sweet peace of the presence of Christ that exceeds the blessings or supposed blessings of this pseudo-peace that the world offers when you go along with it. No, Peter went to sleep that night with this assurance that faithfulness in following God could produce deliverance if God so desired to do it. In other words, he was thrown in jail for his faithfulness to Christ, but he had been gotten out of jail before through the delivering hand of the angels, and he knew this night as he succumbed to sleep that if God wanted to deliver him again, he could certainly do it. What's more so is that all of those people praying at the house where Rhoda will be so overcome with joy that she leaves him standing in the street, all of those people knew that God could do it again. Now for you and me, we need to be in the Word and we need to be in the community of the faithful because every one of these stories is for us too. God is going to do it again. The question that's going to come into play is, will He do it for us? And when our lives are not focused on the proclamation of the gospel and holiness does not mark our behavior, 
We move ourselves completely out of the arena of persecution. The devil lays on his laurels knowing that we're headed to hell with the masses on the superhighway of self-indulgence. And there's no need for these dynamics. There's no spiritual preparation for the end. Yes, indeed, a church has done itself great disservice, as has a home, as has an individual, when they've made for convenience and peace without the pressing needs of a lost world shaking up what's going on in their lives. Peter had followed Jesus. He's laying there asleep, chained to two guards. Every extremity created by Herod's persecuting hand is going to be a greater testimony to God's deliverance. So the angel comes along, hits him on the side, smote him in the side, says, Peter, wake up. The shackles fall off. There's no noise. The door comes open. There's no noticing. Peter thinks it's a dream. He's walking out through the precincts of the prison. He thinks he's in vision. Finally, the final iron door opens up, and all of a sudden he gets it. I've been delivered. He makes his way to the house where Rhoda, we don't really know the rest of the residents of the home. He knocks on the door. She hears his voice. Don't let this detail pass you by. What got him in trouble in the courtyard of Caiaphas and Annas was not only his appearance, but his dialect. This very night, it appears that he might be in trouble again. Not so much because he's done anything wrong, but the resident doorkeeper hears his voice and says, our prayers have been answered. He's out there. Interestingly enough, isn't God good to record the, the fickle of his people? They say, no, that hasn't happened. She says, oh, yes, it has. Finally, they all come to the door, and they're overcome with, with an amazing spiritual happiness. You might say a glorious giddiness. And he says, look, let's quit talking here. I'm, I'm going to go, but I need you to know I've been released. You know, friends, the mark of the beast is really not a mark about Sunday worship versus the commandment-keeping people and a relationship they won't surrender. The mark of the beast is really a mark of fear. And when God's people won't move out of their comfort zones in direction from his divine shepherding call for the sake of the lost, for the sake of their own family, they miss out on tremendous blessings. I want to read you a text, at least part of a text that was sent to me yesterday. This is a text sent by one of our members. And in the process, it encouraged me so, so much. This is what the text says. Two things that the writer of this text wants to reference. I'm going to just use one. Well, maybe two. One of the things they were questioning, they wanted to know why back when the El Salvador trip was supposed to happen, that it was canceled. And why did a small group actually make it down to El Salvador and then have to turn around in a few days and come back. She writes, I praised God that he closed the door before everyone got there, got out of the country. We had almost 200 people who were going to be in El Salvador building the first college in that country. As it was his will, she's praising God. But I also wondered why he allowed the earlier group, especially with an older person in its midst, get out there only to have to come back. And of course, there's a lot of potential exposure in all those airplanes and airports. Today, I read in the newsletter why. If you'd like a copy of our newsletter, get a hold of our church office. We'll send it to you online. 
in that newsletter, there was a story. That story was further explaining a second dynamic of need in El Salvador. You see, we went down there and we spent a lot of money. We bought thousands of dollars worth of food. Now, some of that food was going to perish. It was fresh. So we immediately told those on staff there that they could, uh, one of the treasurers offered to sell it so we'd recoup a little bit of money. But what about the rest of the thousands of dollars of food that's sitting there in storerooms on the campus of Eccles? Today, I read in the newsletter why he wanted food available. Why? He wanted food available to those who live there. I mean, I'm sitting here literally crying because I'm so grateful for this faith-affirming moment. It may not seem like a big deal, but we don't always get to know the why of things. I'm so grateful to have this in real time lesson. And then this person goes on to write that a family member is putting themselves in harm's way to treat people who have the COVID-19 virus. But the testimony of this writer who happens to be a woman is that God is conquering her fear and giving her a greater faith. Listen, friends, this is the journey. We don't know the story of Mrs. Peter as her husband was in prison. If she was still alive, and we surmise indeed she was, we know Peter was married because he had a mother-in-law who was healed on a Sabbath afternoon. Mrs. Peter had her own faith journey to go on. It's not written down here, but it's written down in heaven. And someday we're going to get to read the story. We're going to get to talk to the woman. Every single one of us have an encounter with God that is designed to make us strong, not weak, to have faith, not fear. And that's what this is to be about in these moments that we're in, in planet Earth. What's God calling you to do? Or are you like Peter saying, no, I don't have that problem. I'm not going there. And Jesus says, look, I'm praying for you. And when you can see, I'll be there. Friends, you might have been like, you might be worried about what Elijah was tempted to be worried about. What about, what about food? Nobody was provided more with food than Elijah. How about Elisha? You might be a worry, worried that the deep state, 1984, whatever you want to call it, it's keeping track of your every move. They probably are. There's nothing you can do about it or very little. Don't worry. God knows where his children are. God knows what's going on. He knows how to deliver them. You might be like Esther. You might imagine that somehow there's this deep state political intrigue that's out to destroy God's people. You know what? There's very little you can do about it. But there's a God who sits on the throne who knows where all of his children are. You might be like Jeremiah, wondering, God, I've testified for you for all these years. Why did I get thrown in this pit? But then there's a man, an Ethiopian by the name of Ebed-Melech, who comes along and intercedes for Jeremiah and gets him out. Jeremiah was in prison when Nebuchadnezzar showed up the last time and destroyed the city. It was exactly the right place for Jeremiah to be. There could be no doubt what was going on. He was not in favor with the rebellious king. Friends, as I thought about Jesus' life, I realized that he was arrested, but the prison he went into was far different than the prison some of us may find ourselves in. Jesus marched into the dungeon of death, he took on the sense of eternal loss, the experience of eternal loss for you and me. He never languished like John the Baptist in one of Herod's prisons, but instead he walked into the arms where the greatest shackles ever to be put on the, on the person of man were applied. He broke the fetters of the tomb 
by experiencing the loss, the loneliness, the abandonment, the despair that preceded it. Friends, Jesus has experienced everything we can or will experience in a degree and a depth that is as different as his God-man person could experience for the entire race to exonerate his father and make secure the universe. I'm here to tell you today, I don't have the time to go into Paul's experience in a Philippian jail, but I want to tell you what always got them in trouble, the proclamation of Jesus, the unabashed identity as a follower of the way. And today we are to follow our convictions born out of the word, established in the prophetic messages of the spirit of prophecy. We're to follow Jesus without fear. It is perfect love that will cast out fear. Peter abandoned his worldly ambitions and threw his whole soul into the experience of serving Jesus, his Savior. And when the end was imminent, whether it would be the end or not, there was a peace in his heart that reigned supreme. He knew Jesus could get him out of jail if he wanted to. HMS Richards used to say, the work isn't going to get done until the preachers are thrown in jail. Might be true. I might find myself in one of these cells, cut off from everybody I love, unable to communicate. No hugs, no handshakes, no kisses. All of these things that make my life so rich. Friends, don't diminish the privilege of fellowship. If there's anything we're learning in this COVID-19 moment is that it's a privilege to be with each other and God is looking to pour out on us in a group experience blessings and confidence and peace and power. When the latter rain is poured out, friends, we're going to see the same kind of showdown. We're going to see a religious battle come back to life that's not been happening in Western worlds, at least not as often and as prevalent as it will be. Jesus is calling you and me into a focus on knowing him and a focus on knowing each other to a petitioning to heaven for the power that would come down, the presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus on the cross was a transformational moment for Peter, and the promise of the Spirit was transforming power for the early church. The proclamation of Jesus, the distinct and holy lifestyles, called them into constant conflict with the milieu, the culture of the Roman age. But I want you to know, friends, they rejoice to be able to suffer for Jesus. Oh, I know. That's not how it's marked out today. It's not suffering for Jesus. It's your poor choice of words. It's your stubborn mindset. It's your pride of opinion. Listen, friends, another reason we ought to be in the group. Peter could stand up because he was affirmed by his fellow pastors and the, and the praying, supportive believers that he was doing what's right. When he faced his self-doubt, he had the communion and the confidence of the gathering. Friends, you're not as far out in left field as you might think you are. It might be that what you really need is a renewed sense of the presence and purpose of Christ. He wants to take away our fear and put instead an abiding peace that's built on the presence of Christ. He can shake the shackles off he can kick the doors open, he can pop the stocks, and he can deliver us. If he chooses not to, like the three Hebrew worthies, let it be known that we will not bow down and serve your gods. <laughs> we serve a God who's able. Do you know him? Can he talk to you? Will you follow him? Will you let him grow your spiritual confidence now? 
so that in the future, God is able to use you mightily. Why not ask God to include you in writing one of the rest of the chapters of Acts that are yet to be recorded? Friends, it's up to you. It's up to me. But I know this. None of us will be alone if we find ourselves in prison, and nobody will be left there unless God deems it best for the salvation of those keeping the prison or the refinement of our own life. But along the way, we have today. How's he talking to us? What's he saying? How's he calling? Will we make the journey from fear to faith? Yes, there's a lockdown coming, much worse than this one. You might call it a prophetic lockdown because it'll show down between the false prophets and the true. But friends, Jesus himself will be standing by the side of those who stand up for him. Amen.